Today is Wednesday, October the 19th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The PC market slumps in steepest decline in 20 years. Intel lays off a huge portion of its workforce. Intel, a computer and technology company, is laying off many workers as sales slow down. Intel announced plans last Tuesday to cut its workforce by 12,000 people. That's 11% of its current headcount. Over the past several years, the PC market has rapidly declined. Now, Corporations like Intel must restructure their teams to suit their marketing needs better to improve their revenue. The impending layoffs will coincide with the company's quarterly earnings release, which will unfold by the end of October. Currently, Intel has over 113,000 employees working at the tech company. The Bloomberg report stated that most of the layoffs would happen for workers in the sales and marketing division, which will allegedly have a 20% staff cut. Intel hasn't had a significant layoff situation in over six years with a 12,000-person headcount reduction back in 2016. Alongside Intel's supposed layoffs, the company is expected to have a drastic sales reduction this last quarter. Analysts purport that the PC company will have a 15% drop in its third quarter earnings report as well as a substantial dip in its profit margins. Intel has already warned its investors and the general public about its future profits at the beginning of 2022, stating that the company expected sales to be $11 billion less than the year prior. Ever since Intel, Chief Executive Pat Gelsinger took the helm in early 2021, he's faced an uphill battle to return the company to its former glory as a leading-edge chip manufacturer. That means building out the company's manufacturing capacity, which, while a popular idea during a global chip shortage, has faced criticism as the multi-year plan not only weighs heavily on margins and profitability, but comes at a time when PC demand has plummeted. Microsoft Corporation is laying off nearly 1,000 workers across multiple divisions, according to the news report on Monday. Axios and Business Insider reported the cuts late Monday. Sources told the news organizations that the number of layoffs was under 1,000 and spanned various regions and departments, including Xbox and Edge. Microsoft has about 221,000 employees worldwide, according to its website. A Microsoft spokesperson confirmed that, like all companies, We evaluate our business priorities on a regular basis and make structural adjustments accordingly. We will continue to invest in our business 
and higher in key growth areas in the year ahead. Microsoft is apparently the latest major tech company to cut staff amid fears of a looming recession. Apple depends on its highest-selling product for the majority of the revenue and profit margin it makes. If people stop buying iPhones and Apple is forced to stop selling the iPhone, the company will probably see a massive decline in its yearly income and profits. Apple has reportedly laid off about 100 contract-based recruiters in an effort to slow hiring and spending. The recruiters who are responsible for hiring new employees at the company were told that the layoffs reflect changes to Apple's business needs, according to the Bloomberg News. Advanced Micro Devices is preparing for layoffs that could impact a significant percentage of its staff. The company which makes processors for PCs and servers could let go 20% to 30% of its employees within coming weeks. According to people familiar with the matter, though, they added that the number of affected workers might also be lower. AMD may announce the move its second big staff cut in the past year as soon as next week. AMD had 11,737 employees as of the end of the second quarter. The chipmaker has been struggling of late. Rival Intel has been dominating the PC and server markets, while graphics competitor NVIDIA has gained strong traction with its latest GPU. It doesn't help either that the overall computer market has been slumping badly. Facebook executives are in the process of executing quiet layoffs of underperforming workers that could lead to thousands of employees getting pink slips, according to a report. As much as 15% of the company's workforce could be slashed within the next few weeks. Facebook managers throughout the company were told to select at least 15% of their team who are categorized as needs support. These, those in the 15% category will be out of a job. Eliminating 15% of Facebook's workforce means some 12,000 employees could be out of a job. Layoffs have touched just about every corner of the industry, affecting everything from AI and tech startups to cryptocurrency firms and about everything in between. Just in the past few months, Netflix, Klarna, Calm, Substack, Tesla, and Coinbase have all issued layoffs of various sizes. The troubled PC industry has experienced its steepest pullback in over 20 years. The U.S. Supreme Court hears case on fair use as we know it. In 1981, the photographer Lynn Goldsmith took a portrait of Prince. He sits alone on a white background, wearing a blank expression with a glint of light in his eyes. In the 1984, Andy Warhol used that photo to create art. Warhol altered the image, adjusting the angle of Prince's face, layering on swaths of color, darkening the edges, and adding hand-drawn outlines and other details in a series of 16 silkscreen prints. Forty years later, the artwork is at the center of a Supreme Court case that could change the course of American art, copyright law, and even the state of the internet. The question is whether Warhol's work was fair use or if he violated Goldsmith's copyright. In oral arguments last Wednesday, 
the court wrestled with the finer points of the issue. Did Andy Warhol create an entirely new work of art, or was it just a derivative reinterpretation of Goldsmith's photo? If the art is found to be derivative, the Warhol Foundation will owe Goldsmith millions in fees, royalties, and perhaps additional damages. Goldsmith argues that citing against her will pave the way for artists to have their work appropriated without compensation, which she says would decimate the field of photography. On the other side, a ruling in favor of Goldsmith would make it illegal for artists, museums, galleries, and collectors to display, sell, profit from, maybe even possess a significant quantity of works. The question of fair use is a fundamental issue on the internet, social media platforms in particular. For example, YouTube has copyright algorithms that scan every video. If they detect footage or music that YouTube doesn't have a license to use, the video gets flagged, suspended, or removed. This kind of algorithm is designed to err on the side of caution, and if the rules about fair use become stricter, platforms could get a lot more heavy-handed in their decisions about removing content. There's no such thing as completely original art. Every piece owes something to all the art that came before it. The more you're borrowing from other artists, though, the more original you have to be. You don't have to pay the original artist if it's fair use, which is determined based on four factors. The purpose you're using it for, the nature of the art, how substantially you use the original work, and how your new art affects the market for the original. The lawyers in this case focus on the first and fourth factors, purpose and the market. If your purpose is to say something funny about an existing piece of art, you're probably in the clear. The Warhol Foundation argues that it's appropriating prints transform the photograph because they have a different meaning and message. The original photo was just supposed to be a picture of Prince, but Warhol's work was meant to be a statement about the dehumanizing effects of celebrity culture in America. Several justices seem uncomfortable with the responsibility of answering that kind of question. So too was a lower court. The Second Circuit Court decided in favor of Goldsmith and threw out the whole question of the meaning and message of a work of art, saying that judges should not assume the role of art critic. The Second Circuit said instead, the case should focus on the character of the art, which essentially means how aesthetically similar the two pieces are. Ruling that Warhol and Goldsmith's artworks were too much alike for this to be a case of fair use. To be fair use, the new art doesn't just have to be transformative. It has to be different enough that it doesn't compete as a substitute for the original work in the art market. That could pose a problem for the Warhol Foundation. Neither side seem entirely happy with that ruling. Even Goldsmith's representatives agreed that the Second Circuit was wrong conceding that meeting. Goldsmith's photo was taken for an article about Prince for Newsweek, and Warhol's piece was used in an article about Prince for Vanity Fair. The difficulty of this case is that this particular image is being used maybe for the same purpose to identify an individual in a magazine in a commercial setting, said Justice Neil Gorsuch. Justice Sonia Sotomayor seemed to agree, but Justice Roberts challenged the idea.
It's a different style. It's a different purpose. One is a commentary on modern society. The other is to show what Prince looks like, Justice Roberts said. But the court's decision will have serious implications. A broad ruling in favor of the Warhol Foundation could theoretically make it easier to steal or make liberal use of artists' work. During the trial, the question of movie adaptation of books got a lot of attention. The wrong ruling could mean anyone could turn Darth Vader into a hero or spin-off. A narrow ruling in favor of Goldsmith could have huge repercussions for the art world. The world's largest camera is nearing completion. At the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory in Menlo Park, California, the world's largest camera is under construction for the last seven years, is now nearing completion. SLAC was formerly known as the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. The camera's mechanisms are now fully assembled. If everything goes according to plan, the camera will be shipped to its final destination at the Vera C. Rubin Observatory in the highlands of Chile. The camera will form the heart of the Legacy Survey of Space and Time telescope, where the telescope will work to unravel mysteries of the universe, such as the nature of dark energy and dark matter. The camera's sensor is an array comprising 189 separate charge-coupled devices, also known as CCDs, that each capture a 16-megapixel image. The sensors were placed into specially built, highly precise science rafts of 21 sensors, each by the Department of Energy's Brookhaven National Laboratory, and then shipped to SLAC. The engineers at SLAC put the 21 rafts into a grid to hold them in place. Each raft costs about $3 million, so the stakes were high during fabrication and construction. Paired with the immense sensor is the world's largest lens. The lens is five foot across in diameter. Once that's installed, light travels through a triplet of mirrors to the sensor array. Completing the sensor array and aligning the focal plane was about a six-month job in and of itself. The gaps between each raft are about the width of five human hairs, so there was very little room for error. The camera will capture a segment of the sky 3.5 degrees across, which is about seven times the width of the full moon. The camera will record a pair of back-to-back exposures for about 15 seconds each. The exposures are so long in part because the shutter has a lot of sensors to cover. The telescope will survey the southern sky for years, and its 3.2 gigapixel photos will peer deep into the cosmos. The big part of the engineering challenge is keeping the CCD sensors cold. There are many tubes behind the sensor pumping refrigerant through the system. The sensors must be cooled to around minus 100 degrees Celsius or minus 148 degrees Fahrenheit for optimal operation and to keep visible noise to a minimum. The back-end electronics gets hot, too, and requires specialized cooling solutions. This part of the overall camera is still causing issues and is undergoing additional testing and adjustments. A few components are left to finish the fabrication and setup of the massive camera. The camera requires specialized filters to allow certain 
wavelengths of light to pass through. These filters have been built in Massachusetts and France and are waiting installation. It takes about two minutes for the camera's special filters carousel to swap out filters. Operations manuals, which are being written in English in California and will need to be translated into Spanish for local Chilean technicians at the observatory. Some parts of the lens and other glass elements will also need to be removed for transportation to South America. The camera will be placed inside a large shipping container and clamped to frames to ensure extreme stability during transit. The camera will be transported in a privately charged Boeing 747 from San Francisco direct to Santiago, Chile. If construction finishes on time, and we all hope it will, and the transit goes smoothly, the 3200 megapixel camera should capture sky photos by the year 2024. Some remote workers are choosing to be overemployed. As inflation increases, the cost of everything from food to shelter, more workers need to take on multiple jobs or side gigs to make ends meet. But instead of working multiple retail or food service jobs with varying hours or taking on a variety of freelance gigs with no specific time commitment, some savvy remote workers are using a tactic called overemployment to meet their financial needs and goals. What is overemployment? The pandemic and remote work trend sparked the overemployment trend. Remote work opened the doors for employees who work from home to take on two or more jobs during regular working hours. These full-time employees work just 40 hours per week while essentially collecting two full-time paychecks from two different employers. What are the statistics on overemployment? In August 2022, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that 7.5 million workers, or nearly 5% of the labor force, are working more than one job. It's more difficult to find statistics on those who are working more than one job during simultaneous hours, because overemployed workers are, for obvious reasons, secretive about their arrangements. An employer could, of course, fire someone for working a second job on company time, regardless of their job performance. A host of tools are available to switch between remote jobs as easily as one might switch between tasks for a single computer. Logitech, for instance, makes a mouse that lets you switch between three devices with a click and a tilt wheel for horizontal scrolling. In addition, there is a device called a mouse jiggler that makes it look like you're working even if you aren't. This can help workers whose employees use monitoring software. However, one of the keys to successful overemployment is to find a company with managers who are more or less hands-off, don't call lots of meetings, and only care that your work gets completed. How do overemployed people squeeze 80 hours of work into 40 hours? In order to meet the requirements of the jobs, many workers will look for lower-level positions with fewer responsibilities. In this sense, overemployment does not describe driven go-getters looking to climb the corporate ladder, but people who are seeking freedom from the corporate grind. 
by giving less of themselves, but still meeting performance requirements, overemployed people can maintain a work-life balance, and with two full-time paychecks, two 401ks, and overlapping medical benefits, they are able to save more money and achieve their financial goals, which could be anything from buying a home to retiring early. Of course, the danger of overemployment is that with extra cash plus free time, you could start to live beyond your means. If you can live on one paycheck, consider putting your second paycheck into an investment account automatically before you're tempted to spend it. Some people ask if overemployment is ethical. It is definitely unethical if the two employers are competitors. If you're asking me, it's a new form of theft and deception and not something in which an ethical, honest person would participate. Holding two synchronous, nine-to-five positions is different than having a side hustle or moonlighting. I think it's pretty clear that those who are overemployed are looking for an extra stream of income without really doing much work. More U.S. companies charging employees for job training if they quit. Dozens of people and advocates in healthcare, trucking, retail, and other industries complained recently to the U.S. regulators that some companies charge employees who quit large sums of money for training. Nearly 10% of American workers surveyed in 2020 were covered by a training repayment agreement said the Cornell Survey Research Institute. The practice, which critics called training repayment agreement provisions or traps, is drawing scrutiny from U.S. regulators and lawmakers. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has begun reviewing the practice, while the Justice Department and Federal Trade Commission have received complaints about it. The use of training agreements is growing. Employers are looking for ways to keep their workers from quitting without raising wages or improving working conditions. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which announced in June it was looking into the agreements, has begun to focus on how they may prevent even skilled employees with years of schooling, like nurses, from finding new and better jobs. TRAPS has been around in a small way since the late 1980s, primarily in the high-wage positions where workers receive valuable training but in recent years the agreements have become more widespread. One critic of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was the National Federation of Independent Business, or known as the NFIB, which said the issue was outside the agency's authority because it was unrelated to consumer financial products and services. In comments to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the National Nurses United said they did a survey that found that the agreements are increasingly ubiquitous in the healthcare sector, with new nurses often affected. The survey found that 589 of the 1,698 nurses surveyed were required to take training programs, and 326 of them were required to pay employers if they left before a certain time. Many nurses said that they were not told about the training repayment requirement before beginning work, and that classroom instruction often repeated what they learned in school. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters said in comments that training repayment demands were particularly egregious in commercial trucking. 
They said firms like CRST and CR England train people for a commercial driver's license but charge more than $6,000 if they leave the company before a certain time. The American Trucking Association argues that the license is portable from one employer to another and required by the government. It urged the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to not characterize it as employer-driven debt. Well, if you have a good job, you don't need a training contract. People are going to want to stay. Americans warned not to turn off Wi-Fi overnight as electricity bills soar. As electricity bills continue to rise, turning off your Wi-Fi router is not, I repeat, is not as helpful as you might think. Experts say that this simple step is not beneficial as you won't actually save money on electricity. The experts advise not to power off your router as it will not save on energy costs. Plus, since routers provide the Wi-Fi connection to devices, powering it off will stop the function of other important devices like security cameras or other smart home devices. Turning off your router can actually cause more harm and may even weaken your internet connection. This is due to what is called short cycling, where the router will begin to reduce its lifespan by waning its power supplies and capacitors. Users will end up spending more money by replacing their routers more frequently than needed. Routinely shutting off your router can negatively impact your modem, which is what can slow down your internet connection. However, this typically applies to the router and modem combo units, but happens because the modem will lose sync with your internet service provider. Keeping the router on at all times is the optimum way for your network to run properly as they were created this way. The takeaway? Only restart your router if there is a need. Pixel 7 and Pixel 7 Pro from Google blocks Android apps that aren't 64-bit. Google's Pixel 7 and 7 Pro are important phones for a few reasons, but one of the biggest is how they support apps. As it turns out, the Pixel 7 series delivers the first Android phones that block support for apps that aren't 64-bit. What does that mean for you if you plan on having a Pixel 7 or 7 Pro? It's been no secret that Google has been working towards a future where Android is a 64-bit operating system as opposed to one that still supports 32-bit software. What's the difference between the two? In short, a 64-bit operating system can access drastically more memory addresses, which leads to improvements on both performance and security. Google boasted speed improvements to Chrome for Android, for instance, when it moved to a 64-bit build. Android made the move to support 64-bit apps in 2011 with the launch of Android 5.0, but the platform has always supported 32-bit apps in the years since. It was in 2019 that Google moved to make 64-bit support a requirement for all apps distributed through the Google Play Store. Android's primary source of apps, serving apps that either didn't support 64-bit or didn't have a 64-bit version. Now, Google is taking the next step by releasing Pixel 7 and Pixel 7 Pro with only 64-bit support for apps, but not through a firm block. As confirmed, 
The Pixel 7 series only supports 64-bit apps. The devices are not running on a 64-bit only version of Android though, instead only blocking the installation of 32-bit apps with a message, app not installed as app isn't compliant with your phone, appearing when a user attempts to install a 32-bit app. Well, what does it mean to you? In theory, Google's change to supporting exclusively 64-bit apps on the Pixel 7 series should have no noticeable impact on your experience. This is largely because of the groundwork Google has laid out over the past decade on building up support for 64-bit in Android. One of the only apps is the 32-bit flash-in-the-pan hit Flappy Bird, which hasn't been updated since the game's monumental success and still shocking closure. Google points out that a version of the Pedal smartwatch app doesn't support 64-bit, which means that older smartwatches, which are technically still functional, though unsupported, can't be paired to Google's latest Pixel phones. Notably, too, there's also a potential positive from this. Google claims that benchmarks for power efficiency and performance on devices with more than 4 gigabytes of RAM jump up by 5 to 10 percent. Meanwhile, Google's Pixel tablet is expected to be the first Android device that is truly 64-bit only, as Android 14 may make that move further for other devices. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's where we talk for just a few moments about, yes, yourself, the workplace, and technology. And I'm going to read off. This came from an article that I was reading uh, that someone sent me. I, I can't remember who sent me, but it, the, this really underscores where I'm going with this particular topic. This is a this is a job ad, and it reads: The ideal candidate is a digital native who understands beautiful design, thoughtful UX, digital strategy, and client interaction. Three to seven years leading or participating in business or technology projects, preferably in a consulting environment. We are a team of energetic young professionals that share a love for dogs, beaches, sunshine, and digital marketing. So you may have just gone through that first part and you were a little confused. You moved through that second part and you thought, mm, okay, this is a little odd. And then you got to that third part and you realized, yeah, this is kind of ageist. Ageism. That is the whole idea of some level of, well, think of it like racism. Or racist. Ageist is, yes, discrimination based on age. So that first item, that first that first sentence, the ideal candidate is a digital native. Let's talk about digital natives. I've only met a handful of digital natives who were older than I am, meaning they were in their late 50s versus mid 50s. There's... Uh, there's one that I know that is in his 60s that's a true digital native. And we sat down and we discussed what it was. And what is a digital native? A digital native is somebody who arrived in the computing realm 
sometime prior to being a teenager. That's that's the easy definition. So in your preteens, somewhere between 10 and 13, you had your first computer. You had your first experiences with technology. And you grew up with technology so surrounding you that you can't help but be just just constantly up to date with technology. And then we move into who understands beautiful design, thoughtful UX. What is UX? You're sitting there. You're going, I don't know what UX is. That's user experience. It's a shorthand term that comes from the tech industry. So they're looking for someone. Well, I mean, they're looking for someone who is going to be involved with this. So utilizing that term is not a bad thing. But when we start talking about digital native, digital strategy, some of the older folks start getting scared. They start getting just thrown off by this and they move away from it. And then we move, yes, through the next one. It sets up three to seven years leading or participating in a business or technology products, preferably in a consulting environment. Well, folks who are older, they tend to avoid consulting until they get to a certain age when they specialize in consulting. But that's another story. Usually the the millennials, they're more up to speed with that idea of consulting rather than working at the same company for the rest of their lives. So there's a little discrimination that's sprinkled in there. And then, of course, that third paragraph, we're a team of energetic young professionals. What? I, you know, I, when you start saying that in a job ad right off, you are I mean, that's opening up for discrimination. Share a love for dogs, beaches, sunshine. Is this like, I don't know. This is an online dating profile, not a, no. Uh, I, I, this is, when you see something that is so unprofessional like this for a job ad, you, you have to start to wonder. So how do you, how do you battle this? How do you, how do you go through and you tackle getting a job at a place where, okay, they've, They've kind of geared away from that. Well, some of the things you can do is you start talking about your experience. And this is probably the best the best thing. This is how I've always approached it. Look, I have a ton of IT experience. I've been through all kinds of different things. It helps me with the role that I'm in, that I have the experience and I've seen a lot of different things, so I know what best practices are. I am not an IT cowboy. What is an IT cowboy? Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's somebody who just runs around and they're fixing things and they're breaking things and they're just doing whatever they want. Well, that's not what professional environments want. I want you to think about how you can leverage what I just said in your own life, in your own experience, in your own job hunting, how are you going to get to that next level that through that next interview, then by saying I've been through the ups and downs of this industry, I've been through all of these different things, I have a, a, a plenty of mistakes I've made in my career and I own up to them. That provides me with the learning that some of these new kids on the block aren't going to have the benefit of. Maybe not refer to them as new kids. Don't refer to them at all. 
Find a way that you can leverage that. I'm giving it to you a little bit more plain spoken just to give you that idea of where am I going with this? Where am I going to get a job in this market? Well, I mean, the jobs are easy to get. You just have to go find them and avoid obvious discrimination. There are a number of different ways to age-proof your your entire experience and your resume, your interviews, and there are resources out there on the internet. I want to encourage you to check for those if you are of that certain age. If you're not of that certain age, think about the benefits of hiring somebody who's older and wiser. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Microsoft Windows 11 may have a short product life. Microsoft released Windows XP back in August the 24th in 2001. Windows XP end of support was April 8th, 2014. The lifespan of that product was over 12 years. There were other operating systems, but the next successful one was Windows 7. It was released in July 22nd, 2009, and after 10 years, support for Windows 7 ended on January the 14th, 2020. That's over 10 years. Windows 10 officially released July 15th, 2015, seven years ago. Microsoft is ending support for Windows 10 on October the 14th, 2025. That will be over 10 years. Microsoft officially released Windows 11 on October the 4th, just last year. Does Windows 11 come with an end-of-life support date? Well, it hasn't been announced. It's about a year after its release. How is Windows 11 doing in the marketplace? A surprising number of PCs can't upgrade to Windows 11. Why? The hardware requirements for TPM 2.0 is a big deal-breaker. Just over 40% of all enterprise workstations won't make the upgrade to Windows 11 due to Microsoft's minimum hardware requirements needing TPM 2.0. This was according to a new research from IT asset management firm LandSweeper. Microsoft released Windows 11 in October of 2021 and released Windows 11 22H2 on September 20th. But many organizations haven't gotten around to upgrading yet, and hardware that doesn't make the grade is going to be one of the factors holding them back. The main obstacles to upgrading the devices to Windows 11 are the CPU and the trusted platform module, TPM, which was either not present or not enabled in the research. Windows 11 requires TPM 2.0 and approved CPUs with the equivalent of Intel with at least an eighth generation of Intel's i-series processors. Landsweeper found that 42.76% of CPUs failed to meet the minimum requirement, while 14.66% didn't meet Microsoft's TPM 2.0 requirement. Landsweeper data based on an estimated 30 million Windows devices from 60,000 organizations reveals that on average only 57.26% of the workstations are eligible to receive the automatic upgrade, while the rest would be ineligible. The share of enterprise workstations that can update to Windows 11 has improved over the past year, though. Last October, 
Landsweeper found 55% of the workstations didn't meet the Windows 11 minimum system requirements. The percentage of devices that meet the CPU and TPU requirements have increased by 12%, while those meeting RAM requirements rose by 1.8%. The vast majority of the PCs already meet the 4GB RAM minimum. Last October, Microsoft officials were extremely confident that no customer will be left behind on unsupported Windows 10. If this growth continues, theoretically, all devices should be Windows 11 compatible by 2026, although this falls short of the Windows 10 end-of-life support on October 14, 2025. PC shipments are slowing dramatically. IDC reported this week that cooling demand plus supply chain problems caused PC shipments to decline 15% year-on-year in the third quarter of 2022, totaling 74.2 million units. Shipments by Lenovo, HP, Dell, and Asus were all down for the quarter between 15% and 28%. Apple bucked the industry trend with a 40% increase in shipments. Even though more hardware meets Windows 11 requirements, Landsweeper's research found Windows 11 adoption remains limited. It claimed only 2.61% of users across businesses and consumers have upgraded to Windows 11, while 81.87% remain on Windows 10. That's not saying much at all. It says its data is based on research from over 27 million Windows devices. Windows 11 adoption among consumers was slightly higher at just over 3%, while business adoption was just under 2.5%. Global Stat puts Windows 11 adoption at 13.6%, behind Windows 10 adoption of 72%. So this is reporting from two different outfits, and the adoption of Windows 11 is not meeting Microsoft's expectation goals. Well, why am I bringing all this up? It's now reported that Windows 12... Yes, Windows 12 could arrive in 2024. If that is the case, I ask myself, what is the benefit of converting any of my Windows 10 systems now to Windows 11, and then consider converting from Windows 11 to Windows 12 in less than two years? That makes no sense at all. We don't know much about Windows 12 yet, or whether the rumored upgrade will even become a reality but it seems Windows 11 is going to have a very short product life. I already have one system running Windows 11. Now, I have no plans to convert all the other Windows 10 systems. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, one of the things I wanted to kind of check in with you uh, I know that you've you've been going through and you've been doing a lot of uh, different uh, electrical. Well, electrical is that, that's I don't know if that's, that's the right term. Yeah, 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 a lot of home improvements. Yeah, well, uh, more more contemporization. Okay, Bring, all right. Bringing things out of the fifties and sixties. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been doing some of the same. You know, upgrading light bulbs and things like that around. Yeah, the but house, you don't but... have those bumpy fish tank fixtures. You know, the, the the ones that are made to break if you ever drop them. I or the flat glass plate fixtures. 
right? at, at my old um, at my condo uh, that I had in California. We had the fishbowl fixers, no, yeah. but they were the smooth fishbowl, straight I straight out of disco mid seventies. Oh man, it was it was. You looked at it, it was horrible. Looking at it and feeling horrible about still having it there. Yes, it's a wonderful, compelling thing. <laughs> and I've even gotten to the point. Don't do this at home, folks. Where I will, without turning the breaker off, be willing to change a fixture out. Okay. Now I have a lot of insulated tools, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of insulated Klein tools. I, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, true and true. So I still don't do it all myself. I had an electrician through here recently. Yeah. Now, you remember we did a whole tons of upgrades to the distribution box and, and uh, surge protection for the whole house mm -hmm, and all of that. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this round. We had two brown exhaust fans installed. We had two bathrooms that did not have exhaust fans. And we ooh, all know ooh, the yeah. result of that. Yes, yes. Uh, I could make a joke now, but it'd be a stinker. No, you will not. <laughs> <laughs> all uh, right. The one downstairs has an infrared motion detector. Uh, and ooh, the one okay. upstairs has a humidity sensor uh, for nice. showering and that kind of nice. thing. So, okay, yeah, yeah. In, in, in both cases, swapping in twin decor switches for a single toggle didn't change the box. It just was a matter of running one more wire, and it, it turned yeah. out to be pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the bathroom wall plugs did not have GFCI. We took care of that. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that could turn into a shocking situation. Oh, uh, yeah, I, You know, I've done a lot of that. I, I've replaced a number of them around the... Uh, uh, around my new home, uh, just doing, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, there should be a GFCI here, but no. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I, I had a box full, so all, all I'm paying is the electrician, and since he's here yeah. already, it doesn't yeah. add very much. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, the last of the fluorescents are gone. Okay. Those, the last two were in the garage. One of them was eight feet long. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other one was a, a four-foot uh, drop you know, on the chain work light over the workbench in the corner. The eight foot long was on the ceiling. I got lead fixtures for both locations. Okay, so what are you doing? What uh, what color are you choosing for the garage? 4100. 4100, okay, all right. 4100 4, is good reproduction and perception of colors. Mm -hmm, yeah. If I'm ever painting... I don't want to have my perception of the paint color shifted by the light in my workspace. Sure. Yeah, cuz you want to avoid you want to avoid like the 2700 which is that amber uh, that, yeah. that amber color that we well let's see 2700 is the soft white it's 2200 for warm uh, which is the full yellow and then there's the 5000 daylight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh. It's great if you want that candelabra look, you know, you do that. But yeah, okay, forty one hundred. I like that. All right. Yeah. Uh, now, that's pretty much what the electrician did. But mm -hmm. I was not idle. We had a uh, one of those bumpy fishbowl fixtures on the second floor hallway at the top <laughs> okay. of the stairs. All right. And it was really hard to take anything tall down that hall without the danger of glass. <laughs> you know, you yeah, got it yeah, right. Yeah. So we found something that was quite delightful. It, it was uh, 
like a squashed mushroom cap kind of thing. Okay. And we put 4,100 there. In fact, uh, the, that particular fixture gave me a choice of five color temperatures. I went, I think it's 4,000. Tu uh, tunable. So, yeah. Tunable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. love that. I yeah. love that feature. So that one went there. And two more of the same fixture went to the downstairs hallway at the foot of the stairs where the main entry door is. Mm -hmm. Okay. The degree of lighting. Should I say night and day? I'd better not. <laughs> <laughs> the degree of lighting. Oh, dear. Yes. Lighting intensity and, and, yeah, and penetration. Yeah. Uh, just dramatic. Mm -hmm. The kitchen, I had already changed one fixture to something that is... Uh, looks a little bit like a white hockey puck so light comes out of the base and the sides the okay. rim yeah yeah all right i say white hockey puck it's bigger it's probably yeah, yeah. 10 11 inches something frisbee. like that a white frisbee yeah, yeah. White frisbee. light frisbee whoa <laughs> and uh i had two more of those that i'd kept in a closet against the day when i felt rambunctious mm-hmm Mm -hmm. So one of those went down the hall toward the back door and the other one in the laundry. And okay. it, again, 4,100 all the way. And it and, makes... And, okay. Now, I, mean, I did tunable for my dining room. So if I want that that candlelight yeah. or I want that, oh, we're playing cards. Let's uh, let's brighten it up. Yeah. A dining, a dining room is one of the most challenging places. Yeah. Because you want to have the light at the plate warmer and the light yeah. on the food in the center that you're serving, uh, higher temperature, closer to 3,500, 4,000. So, yeah, yeah, done well. All righty. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation, How to Make the Best of Video Meetings, a presentation by Alfred Poor, Thursday, October the 27th, meeting time at 6.45 p.m. It's a virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. Tech Ed Connect, formerly known as the Westchester PC Users Group, has a presentation on uninterruptible power supplies. Thursday, November the 3rd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, November the 4th, meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, November the 8th, meeting time is 7 p.m., Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, 347 278 7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, November the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Presentation is Guide to Buying New, Refurb, Overstock, Discount, and Outlet Computing Equipment. It's an online virtual meeting via Zoom. 
The website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, November the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Happy computing! Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.